0: Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute where I cover everything from politics, law and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week in my monday column this week i wrote about how the the hard and curious task of the conservatives have to conserve the rebellious impulse of americans during a pandemic specifically concerning the impulse to not wear masks that's high on everyone's minds right now. In my Friday column, I wrote about how nothing should be seen as inevitable with regards to China, whether a cold or hot war. We shouldn't believe that we are inevitably headed towards anything, but what we should do is be prepared for any conflict with The Communist Chinese Party. And finally, in the newsletter this week, I wrote about the technocratic aristocrats trying to run the country currently and what that means, both in the veins of the Michael Flynn story and beyond. We're going to jump back into some of those thoughts later on today in the second segment of the show. So if any of that interests you now, you can make sure to go and sign up and get the columns and newsletter delivered right to your email inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link there. I've left links to that as well as to the columns mentioned here in the show notes, which you can find at any time during the show. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please subscribe and rate this podcast five stars. You can find uh, the places to review it and this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find us, and I look forward to reading those reviews. All right, in this week's show, we're going to start out with an overview of the coronavirus, looking at the big picture numbers and the expectations moving forward. We've hit a lot of these in previous weeks. It's a good starting off point to help hit both the high points that we're hitting as well as what we need to do in other situations. In the second segment, like I mentioned earlier, I'm going to explore some of the topics I talked about in this week's newsletter as well as plugging in what I'm writing for this Monday Uh, I have a column coming out talking about some um, similar themes, some technocratic themes. And so I'm going to put those two together and sort of talk through the different ideas there. And then finally, in the third segment, we'll go through some of the latest horse race numbers between Donald Trump and Joe Biden for the general election this fall. So that's going to sort of round out all the topics for today's show. And glad to have everyone on board. So, like I said, we're going to start off this This week with the coronavirus talking through the improvement in numbers that we're seeing as well as sort of some of the other trend lines you need to keep in mind going forward through especially the next two weeks. So we have seen certainly some major improvements with the coronavirus, and we're seeing improvements not just on a weekly or monthly basis, but on a daily basis. And while that's been true for a while, the the increases that we're seeing both in testings and the trend lines we're seeing on the virus itself are moving in the right directions on a daily basis in distinctly positive ways. And the first thing you need to look at is the number of tests. The number of tests that we're running continue to go up every single week and day by day. The number of positive cases as a share of those and the positivity rate that goes along with that continues to drop. So we're running more tests, but we're not getting an outsized number of positive cases coming back with those extra tests that we're running. In the past week alone, so just looking from Sunday to Sunday, because I'm recording this on a Sunday night, The United States ran 2.5 million tests, and I'm rounding down on that because it was a little bit over that. So 2.5 million tests, that is an astounding number and amazing progress that we've made in a very short time. If you just think back, we're in May now and you think back, we were barely hitting a thousand tests in in March. It was a miracle when we started hitting ten thousand tests a day. And right now, in a week span, we hit two point five million tests. That is an amazing amount of progress. And then since Thursday, what's even more amazing here, if you just go back in the middle of the week and start on Thursday, before that, we were averaging around 300,000 tests a day. And we've seen improvements there since Thursday, that's gone up to 350,000 tests a day. And on Sunday, so the day that I'm testing, or I'm recording this, 422,000 tests were run alone, which is an amazing number. We are at some point going to hit 500,000 tests a day, which is just an astounding number to think of, you know, half a million tests in a single day, which means, you know, you're you're we're going to be running millions in the span of a week. If you look at the, the IHME trend lines, they've, they've run models on when they expect us to be able to hit five hundred thousands, and their models estimate is that we will hit 500,000 by July 4th, but if you're just judging by what we're doing now in May, we're going to hit that mark much sooner, so it would not shock me by either the end of next week or in the next couple of weeks, we hit the 500,000 mark pretty easily and then from there it's just a matter of, i mean it, we're already clearing i thought if what we needed to hit was 250,000 a day to be making a serious dent in the number of cases that we're seeing and right now we're doing near double that and we're going to hit that pretty quickly so these are the numbers you want to be able to see in if you want to reopen across the board across the country you need to be hitting these high testing rates so that you can reopen not just you know various states and counties but entire industries across the country. The more people see that testing is widespread, the more they 're going to be willing to go out and venture out into the world and go shopping and increase demand overall so that the economy can get restarted so the top line numbers broadening out from there. Just overall, we've run, as a country, 11.5 million tests at the end of day Sunday. And like I said, 2.5 million just in the last week alone. Of that 11.5 million, 1.5 million are positive cases. We've had 84,000 deaths as of the end of this week, and so that really looks like we're going to hit at a minimum a hundred thousand deaths, which was the previous low range that we had before the sixty to seventy thousand death range was given to us about a month ago now, I believe it was. So it looks like a hundred thousand is where your estimates need to be hit right now. If the the one caveat to that is there was a serious dip in the number of deaths. On Sunday, we had a little over 800 people die, which is still a lot, but it is the first time we've dipped below 1,000 people in a long time. Before this, you were seeing more than 2,000 people die each day, and sometimes, even if it was below 2,000, it was still quite a bit and pretty close to that number. So today showed a very serious dip, below 1,000. It's unlikely that that will stay because you typically see these numbers... Uh, bounce around noisily on a day-to-day basis, but if that signals a downward trend, that could mean that we see a, a sharper decrease in the number of deaths sooner rather than later, and that would be a very very good thing. If you went back and looked at the IHME models, they were anticipating that we wouldn't see something along the lines of 800 deaths in a single day until until around July-ish, late June, early July. So we could be moving ahead of schedule on that front. It's still early to tell because it's only one day, but it is a potentially very positive point, a data point to look at so that is another improvement that we could be looking at moving forward the ihme model is projecting 147,000 deaths so before the the previous range was between 100,000 and 250 250,000 so 147 would be sort of on the low end of that it's over 100 but it's still lower it's not it's you know it's not 200 not 250,000 which would be astronomical. So it's still a lot, but it is still well below the initial estimates, which were in the millions, and the the worst-case scenario of the second round of predictions, which were up between one hundred and two hundred fifty thousand. and 250,000. So in that prediction, that projection, I should say, it is 147 deaths by August 4th, because even if you do see the curve continue to go down, people are going to continue to die from this disease. It's just a matter of fewer of them are going to die each day. But even if fewer of them are dying, that number is still going to pile up over the long haul. So this is the trend lines are that things will continue to tail off over the course of the summer. And we would hope that they trail off faster than what projections are but up, up until now it's been a very long tail on the the statistical models that are looking at this that it's going to that it, those are predicting that it takes us a long time to get to a low point in the death curve all of this of course can change depending you know on new data and just different shifting situations but you know, especially you know if you're looking at states that are keeping their nursing homes clear and clean to reduce the number of deaths really any closed system you have to keep an eye, a close eye on. Here in Tennessee, they've had to send tests into all the prisons. So occasionally you see a very large spike in Tennessee's numbers, and it's not because there's a large outbreak in any one county, but it's because there's an outbreak in a prison. But even that doesn't mean that it's a serious outbreak, because in, in a I I believe in one prison they said that 98% of the positive cases that came back were asymptomatic. So the, the number of positive cases here could be a little bit... It's not always a clear picture of what's happening. You kind of have to combine... The number of positive cases along with the number of hospitalizations to get an idea of just how bad an outbreak is. Because if it's just people who are asymptomatic, they aren't going to show up in your hospitalization numbers. It just means that they are carriers, but they're not exhibiting any of the traditional symptoms. Now, whether or not they're suffering from anything else, which some studies have shown, we do not know. But we do know that they could spread it. So these closed systems are really the danger point here. So you're looking at nursing homes, prisons, and anything else. A school system would be similar in this case because it's it's closed up, everybody's next to each other and so it's very easy to spread a disease. That's why you typically see a large spike in flu in the winter when school season is in the session and people are just just not outside to allow, you know, things to air out. So that's what you have to watch. You have to watch some of these closed systems. If you can keep people out of them, it's harder for the virus to spread. And that's why it doesn't make a lot of sense for anyone really to to mock or make fun of any of these states that are reopening beaches or state parks because... You're just, that's not where you're going to catch it. There's no study that I'm aware of that shows that these outdoor settings are where the virus is being spread. Even on some of these crowded places, the places where you're going to get it are in a building or in a, some sort of closed system, like a nursing home, a hospital or anything similar, a prison. So you have to think in those terms that those are the most dangerous places to be in terms of spreading the virus. If you think back, actually, and you go back to to South Korea, they had a super spreader. They had the first 30 cases all nailed down, but they had a super spreader who went into a couple of closed areas. One of the places she went into was a buffet and spread it there. And every place that she went in the buffet, she spread it to everyone else there, and that caused a widespread outbreak. The second place she went was a church. And there were thousands of people at this church service that she went to, and she went there, and it spread, and they could not stop all the people who then went out from there and spread it everywhere else. So the key is to identify the people who have it and prevent them from going to these closed systems, which causes an even greater outbreak. On that note, I wanted to go through one of the biggest mistakes of this, and that is that has all happened in New York. Previously, I have praised New York Governor Andrew Cuomo for some of the actions that he's taken, and that was very early on because his press conferences are good. He was taking very strong action at curtailing it, but as time has gone on, these are all looking like very, very bad actions, especially not just from Cuomo, but from New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. They look like not only did they drop the ball, they are the reason not just that it spread in New York, but that it spread across the country. One of the worst decisions that was made by Andrew Cuomo was that he ordered... Early on, for hospitals to send patients who had tested positive with COVID ni- COVID-19, he sent those patients back to nursing homes. If that's where it was coming from. So if you were removed from a nursing home by an ambulance and people, they took you to a hospital, Cuomo ordered that these people should go back to the nursing home to receive their care. And so this allowed people who had the disease to spread it much faster and further across the New York nursing home system. In fact, I believe they had somewhere north of over five thousand deaths in their in their nursing home system alone, and it can be directly tied back to this policy. I believe they've only recently started changing that, but this just it just dramatically increased the number of people who were dying from COVID nineteen across New York, especially in these nursing homes. And so, laws change to prevent the nursing homes. Law, what they've also done in response to this, because they've realized their mistake. Is that they've changed the laws to give liability protection to these nursing homes? So now, if you have a family member who died in one of these nursing homes, it's going to be much harder to sue them for any kind of type of malpractice in this case. And in reality, it it wouldn't be the nursing homes' fault in this case. It would be the governor's. He's the one who made this this order and forced people back here, which caused a much larger outbreak than was needed. The New York media has not been hitting Cuomo over this and other problems because the other thing that they didn't do, and Cuomo and de Blasio are specifically to blame here, is that they did not shut down the subway system and other major forms of public transportation like the bus and taxi system, which helped spread the virus everywhere. Only recently were they requiring people and workers to wear masks, Were they, and only recently did they start cleaning the subway system overnight this means that the subway was the main fact factor in how this spread not just, you know, not just in key parts of the city but all over the city and then everywhere else because they, these places are going to lead to your airports and other places which makes it easier for New York to seed the rest of the country and that's what they found in studies of this virus now because as you keep testing you keep seeing the genetic profile of the virus and what they've and what scientists have noted is that there are two key strains there's a New York strain and a a California Washington strain so an east coast and a west coast what they found is that the west coast strain came in from China which should make some sense there's a large population of Chinese people, either either foreign or domestic who live on the West Coast. And so you just have more connections there, more planes coming in and out. So you would expect that to come in from over there. And even with that, California and Washington were able to lock down their prospective states and prevent a large scale spread, unlike what happened in New York. If you if you just think back and remember People were very concerned about Washington and California early on. They were very concerned that this was going to be the place where it spread to the rest of the country. That's not what ended up happening. It did spread to some of the western states that way, but not to the rest of the country. In New York, the virus came in from Europe. And from there, because New York did nothing to stop the spread of the virus, It spread all across New York, and then from there, New York proceeded to seed all of the rest of the East Coast Cities and states. And so when you look at the genetic profile of whether it came in, whether your state has more of the East Coast variant or the West Coast, there's more signs in a lot of these states that New York is the direct reason that many states have it. I know if you look at Tennessee, Virginia, the Carolinas, the Mid Atlantic, all those states up through there and the Northeast, they can all point to the New York strain being the, ver- the reason that they have the primary outbreaks in their cities and counties. You do see a little bit of the Chinese strain from California, but it is minimal in comparison from the New York version that came in. So you have from China to Europe to New York, and then from New York to, for the most part, they're just the rest of the country. That's how this went. So New York's decision to send positive patients back to the nursing homes to not do anything about the subway system and other similar things has allowed this to spread much further and much farther than it would have otherwise. And The national media, which is all located in either New York or Washington, D.C., is not calling out Andrew Cuomo or Bill de Blasio on these things. You're beginning to see some stories come out, but the headlines are all about how the states like Texas, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, and others, which are reopening, how they're all making mistakes, and governors like Georgia's governor, I forget his first name, but his last name's Kemp, but that he has blood on his hands, for what he did, and there's just no evidence right now that the reopening is causing a spike in cases. The only evidence that you have that there's more cases is that all these southern states are running more tests than they otherwise have been, so you're getting more tests. I know in Tennessee, when you see a large spike of tests, this is because they've tested a prison, most likely. Otherwise, the overall growth is somewhere between one and three percent, which is astronomically low when compared to the national average, and just mind-bogglingly low when you pre- when you uh, pre- look at compare that to New York's numbers, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut specifically. So the attacks that we're seeing on some of these other governors like Texas, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, even Colorado, which is run by a Democrat, when you compare the stories about them versus what's happened in New York, there's this disconnect about where blame actually sits because it doesn't matter if Florida's beaches are open. That's not the main problem in spreading the disease. The main problem was early on in New York. These beaches are likely some of the safer places for people to be, especially if they're properly socially distanced and just taking basic precautions like washing their hands and other things. These beaches and state parks aren't the problem. It's these closed systems. And the subway system would be one of those closed systems to cause an infection to increase. So there's going to be eventually as these stories start coming out more about what Cuomo and de Blasio got wrong, because you just can't hide this, and people are going to try to sue them for what they did here. There's just going to be more that comes out. I think you're going to see a, a change in how the media covers this, and they're going to shift this from Cuomo and de Blasio are to blame for the policies, just due to the policies that they enacted. You're going to see a shift here where the media is going to try to shift blame away from them and probably towards the federal government. You're going to see Donald Trump blamed for what happened in New York as opposed to what these two specifically, Cuomo and de Blasio, what they did. And this is a very different change in how the media covers this. They've always blamed Trump, but using Trump to cover for the sins, as it were, of a mayor or a governor is different how they're covering the states that are reopening. They're directly blaming the states in question here and their policies for reopening. I don't think they're going to do the same thing for Cuomo and de Blasio. Whatever policies Cuomo and de Blasio made, it's because the virus is bad and they had to do something. And because they had to do something, it's all Trump's fault. I think that's what you're going to see happen here. But the reality of the situation is, especially if you follow the same logic that is being followed with all these reopening states... Cuomo and de Blasio are to blame for the spread of the virus in New York, and frankly, they are to blame for what happened when it's going out to the rest of the country because the federal government has no power to do anything either with the subway system or the New York health system. That is going to come directly from the governors and mayors. That is not something that the federal government can do. They can suggest it through the CDC and other means, but the power to actually do something rests in the governor's mansion and the mayor's office. Those are the two people who have to do, their, do these things, and they fell down on the job. So I think you're going to see that, that shift happen. It's probably going to happen over the next month, just because the stories about how, these, how Cuomo and de Blasio failed are just now beginning to come out, and people are beginning to realize all The bad decisions that they made early on, and even continuing, even into when the pandemic was at its worst and they were getting praised, you're going to see them get more and more blame here. So, there's going to have to be some attempt made to shift the blame away from them. So, outside of New York, though, the trend lines are all good. Watch closely, though, for signs of a second wave, especially this week. For the states that have reopened, we're finally in the the time frame now where you would begin to understand whether or not reopening is causing any kind of a second spread of the virus, and that's because it takes seven to ten days at least before you start seeing signs of an outbreak, because you have to spread the virus, the virus has to incubate, and then you have to start showing symptoms before people start getting tested. Now, you may be able to find some of these earlier because people may may get tested before they show signs, but typically it, it has taken seven to ten days before we see any results from any policy. So when the shutdowns first happened, cases still began to grow because We just didn't see anything. You didn't see the results for about a week to week and a half, and you didn't get good data until two weeks. And so we're just now hitting the point in May where if your state reopened on the 1st of May, now you'd be hitting the two-week mark. And so that means we should be getting good data. So far, I have not seen any data out of any state that shows that there are increasing numbers of infections. I know CNN tried to do that with Texas, arguing that Texas was seeing a spike in cases, but in reality, what what actually happened in Texas, and Nate Silver at 538 pointed this out, it's that Texas was testing a lot more, and so they had a lot more test results come in, and which showed a lot more cases that came in, but it was not it was not out of line for what you would expected with a standard increase of testing. So the positivity rate was still the same, and so you just found more cases because you tested more people. That's a good thing. That is not a bad thing. So that is not a sign that there is more spread of the virus. It's just a sign that Texas did more, more testing than normal. So as these states do more testing, you have to balance that with the number of cases that are actually found. And so if you start seeing the positivity rate go up, and this is the key way you would measure this. If you want to know if an outbreak is is, is increasing, you need to see an increase in the number of people who are testing positive each day. You need to see an increase in the number of people who are hospitalized just something where there is more strain than normal on the system because more people are getting it than they were before. That is how you will know that happens. And if that doesn't happen, that means the virus is not spreading even though we are reopening. And that's a good thing. It means people are following proper social distancing, they're wearing masks and other things. So that means that all these policies are working. But like I said, this this next week, these next week, the next two weeks are when you're going to see the data come in. And so, CNN's already tried to do this once with Texas. I suspect other media organizations were trying to argue that we're seeing an increase in the number of cases. But until you see that going beyond and beyond, you know, the rates that we're seeing now, there's no actual sign that that's happening. And 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 I've been looking hard for this. I haven't seen it in Tennessee, which has been reopening, and I haven't seen it in any of these other states. In fact, most of these states are usually seeing the positive rate, so the number of people who are testing positive as a percentage of the overall tests, most states who are reopening have seen this number drop. So reopening is having no impact on the spread of the virus so far. Hopefully that continues. and That means that reopening will be a success. And hopefully that also means that we'll see the economy be able to jump back faster than expected. So those are the trend lines. Those are the top line numbers when we come back after the break, we'll get more into the topics I covered in this week's newsletter and the technocratic aristocracy. In the newsletter this week, I received several messages from people who really liked the piece that I did on technocratic aristocracy. and one reader in particular who, who asked me if I had any solutions for the technocratic aristocracy or the administrative state, as I was writing through that, and I almost had a section that just went through some some ideas that I've either read or had on fixing that problem, and so I'll cover more of that. I felt like I was already running long in this week's newsletter going through both the Michael Flynn case and the ideas on this concept, so I'll get more into them this next week, this next Friday, talking through different solutions on that, because there are ways that I think you can curtail the aristocratic tendency aristocratic tendencies that you see in America because our versions of this are different than what you've seen in the past in other countries and other civilizations. So to recap real quick, the aristocratic technocracy is a class of new aristocrats. So an aristocrat really would be like the middle managers of a company or the new policy elites that try to run the government and are trying to run it apart from elected officials. So this would be in in specifically this would be the administrative state. So these are your people who are running government agencies, are running places like the state department. They're not elected, they would be considered career career bureaucrats typically, but they are Aristocratic in the function of they are fulfilling this role of trying to run the government apart from the elected class that is in the Constitution. Because the administration, the administrative state is. A whole new creation that came at the start of the 20th century from the progressives who wanted this new form of a professional civil service. That was what Woodrow Wilson uh, called for in 1901, and I went through some of his piece in the newsletter in 1901 Woodrow Wilson was you know the future president of the progressives and they were wanting to move away from democracy what they th- saw in democracy was a form of inefficiency they wanted the the government and really the world to be run by this new class of scientific experts people who could look around, use their expertise, and choose better solutions and better ideas than the people who were elected into Congress or even the presidency. They were wanting this professional civil service to cut out all these people who were elected or put in by elected members of Congress or the elected branches. So they 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 form this professional civil service role. They are the expertise. and so they use that as a means of pulling the different levers and sort of circumventing some of the whims that they would call of democracy. Now, aristocracy, in and of itself, is a natural part of human society. And it doesn't take that much to see how this sets up. It's just basically the middle row. So when you think of sports or something similar like that, you have your very, very top elites. These are going to be similar to your kings or monarchs. They are the people who basically run the league. If you go into basketball, there are basically 10 players who basically are the elites of that, and they basically run a league. You have Adam Silver and you have others, but basically they are the ones who run the league they, because they have all of the power in it. And then you move out from there. If you look at a company, you have this next tier of people who are your, more of your, your middle managers or C-suite type executives. They are running a lot more things. They have you know sort of their own little minor kingdoms within a company, and that would be sort of your aristocratic level and so that's a lot when you're looking at the, and then after that, you know, you get to the democratic level where there's just everybody. Um, so your your aristocratic level is really that mid-tier when you're looking at a chart of just you know your hierarchy of people. And so this always happens. In the past, your the aristocracy, aristocracy were your rich nobles, your landed people who owned the land and served under the king. So they were that rich middle class between king and the rest of society. And that the the type of people who made up that changed over time because eventually capitalism created other rich people who wanted to get into this class, and that caused all kinds of strife. I've been reading some of Benjamin Disraeli's novels of in the Victorian era and you can see some of this coming through because you have the new industrialists who are running factories who are getting absolutely wealthy and in some cases even more wealthy than the old aristocrats and there's this strife between the two classes because the industrialists want to break through and be at the same level but because they're not considered, you know, blue bloods, noble blue bloods who actually have a a family right and under English law to this, there is this strife between the two. So that was what aristocracy, aristocracy used to stand for. In America, the founders really tried to get rid of that, specifically Thomas Jefferson. He, they all agreed that aristocracy was natural to the human function, but what they saw as these old nobles being that, they saw that as an artificial form of an aristocracy. What Jefferson in particular wanted was a natural form of aristocracy, where people who achieved that level got there on merit and talent alone. And so if you had that, then you had people who had earned this place, and so they had more of a right to it than people who just got it on the basis Of either their birth order or their family line. And so that provided more equality to a society. People had the ability to move up and down the socioeconomic chain. And so that was how the founders got around this. They passed a series of laws that basically, you know, you have things like stripping titles of mobility, you have just different laws that they passed in that time to get rid of this old type of what they called an artificial aristocracy to allow a new form, sort of, you know, you're allowing the market to choose who is going to become one of these new kinds of American nobles. And so that's the theory that people who are in this should only be there on account of their own merit and talent. But that has changed over time. In the What has changed is that people who have gotten into this have tried to kick down the ladder to not allow other people who are not like them in. And so what it's become is this elite class of people who all go to the same Ivy League schools. You see, you get into some of these government agencies, and everyone went to some Ivy League in one place or another, you know, your Harvard's, your Yale's, your Princeton's, all that. And so these places are a form of a social club of the people who run all these different agencies. And so education has become a new form of class, and these people have attempted to run the administrative state and all of the similar type organizations similarly. And so they, they all come from the same social groups, the same classes, the same schools. And so that has become, instead of, you know, you have this family line, and now you have this educational line where you know, if you went to that school, you're automatically presumed to have a better status than anyone else that could have that job. So that is this new form here. And as a result, because they believe that their expertise coming out of here is better than everyone else, it has created this technocratic angle to this to where. It's not just they're a ruling aristocracy. They have taken the Woodrow Wilson notion of a professional civil service and added that onto it. And so they're a technocratic version of the aristocracy. They are this high-end middle manager type view trying to pull all the levers of power to their own ends. So that's sort of... I I started out calling this a recap. That's a long way around of describing what this is. You hear sort of in in common political parlance, you hear people talk about the deep state threat, where there's always some kind of deep state conspiracy, deep state, deep, you know, just deep state everything. And that's not what's happening here. These people are not some kind of deep state's conspiracy. They're a class of people who have tried to close off access to anyone else. They have become like their predecessors of old, the nobles who had the land, who didn't want to expand you know, the rights of voting and other things to allow some of these new people in. They didn't want that at all. And so when you that happens, you get this static situation where the only this type of people who have the same type of education or same type of social connections are the ones getting in. So that's sort of the background here. That's the background of everything that I was covering through here. In the newsletter, I started on the Michael Flynn case. And the reason that I started off with him is because he got absolutely hosed in his deals with the FBI and the Department of Justice. What happened in that case is that the FBI agents, among them were Peter Strzok and and others, they viewed Donald Trump as a unique threat to the republic. I quoted Eli Lake's piece on the FBI, and it's fantastic. I have, I believe, two or three paragraphs quoted in that. And those were towards the end. You should absolutely go read that. It was the cover story a Commentary Magazine. But in any event, this new form of technocratic aristocracy viewed Trump as a unique threat. And so what this meant is that they started trying to overrule and check everything around Trump because they saw it as their duty to check this unique threat. And that also meant that that gave them cover and gave them the right to start overruling various rules, rights, and norms to go after people like Michael Flynn, because they were specifically trying to convict him to either kick him out or something else. And I cover sort of the background of some of the thoughts that were there. And Dealing with Michael Flynn here for a minute. He's not a good guy. He legitimately did things that a person connected with U.S. intelligence should not be doing. You don't want... A guy connected with the U.S. intelligence, going and taking money from Vlad Vladimir Putin, and going to functions where he's at. You don't want him advocating on behalf of Turkey, which has become a quasi-enemy of the United States, even though it is in NATO. So those are the bad marks for Flynn. Those are things he should not have done. But the way the FBI handled this, they absolutely hosed him, and did not go after the serious allegations. They decided to cut a deal with him and go after him on the perjury things, which looks like it was just completely made up on their part. That was how he got hosed here, and all the rules that all these FBI agents and Department of Justice lawyers did, they justified that on the grounds that Trump was a unique threat and that they, as this new technocratic aristocracy, had the power and the duty to act on it, even though they, as an administrative agency and as administrative state actors, are unelected and are subordinate, technically, to everyone who is constitutionally elected or put in as a constitutional officer of the United States. These administrative state actors believe that they were a check on the presidency and the legislative branches. They are actually still scared of the judicial branch, which is sort of interesting here because the founders designed the judicial branch to be another form of an aristocracy in a case. So they are scared of those who are more powerful but also sort of their own. So that is sort of an interesting irony there. But the presidency and the legislative, which include elected actors, they believed themselves as a check on that, which is interesting because that is what Woodrow Wilson wanted in the progressive era. He wanted these people to run the government to get us away from this whims of democracy. And so I actually think you can point to some of this as a reason we're seeing so much populism right now because the administrative state is taking power away from these elected branches and moving it to these unelected versions of it. So you have these professional civil service types who are taking political power away from those who do the actual elections. And that's a serious point because all forms of government, all consent, the consent of the governed, you know which I wrote about a, couple, about a couple of weeks ago, that's very important because if people don't give their consent to this, that means it starts removing legitimacy from the branches. So I think you're seeing some of these populist swings right now because these aristocratic types are trying to seize more power for themselves. So that's, that's what came out to me in the Michael Flynn story. When you start peeling apart all of this, It's all these actors believed that they had the duty and the power to act on what they saw as a unique threat. And that's sort of one angle of it. The other angle of it is that they believe very strongly in their own expertise over all things. And that's sort of what my column on Monday gets into. Because you have a lot of these technocrats running around talking about how Donald Trump and his administration ignored the the US the the playbook that they put together during the Obama administration and so they ignored the bureaucratic playbook i think it was it was 69 pages this playbook that the Obama Obama administration had put together on how to handle a pandemic situation, and this was based on what happened under H1N1, the, the, the bird flu, and also during the Ebola and Zika virus outbreaks. And the thing about this playbook, it's 69 pages, so it's not long and you can peruse it because, you know, it, it's a, there's a lot of charts. The thing about it is, is that it's mostly just a list of questions that you ask and try to answer, and they're not specific questions questions. They are general questions like, how are our overall U.S. diplomatic bilateral relations with all countries? You know, what's the status of our power here? And things like that. It's sort of these generic, bland questions that they're touting as a playbook. And there, of course, there are some other more specific ones. But to call this a playbook is sort of just is a mockery of the word playbook. When you think of a playbook, you're thinking of, you know, like an NFL coach who pulls out his chart that has all the situations that they can encounter, everything from third and short to third and long, and you have a list of plays that you would run against this specific opponent. And so you look at those, you're like, okay, we're going to run this play because we've seen this weakness happen this way. That's not what this is about. This just has questions that you're supposed to ask and answer. There's not a, if this happens, break this glass and use in case of emergency. That is not what the playbook is, and it's not how it works. And only a technocrat, only the technocratic mind can sit here and say, well, we put together a report, and that means we were prepared because we had a report. Did you not read the report that we put together? The report, the report, the report, the report. The report. They believe that because they put together a report with colors and charts and graphs and questions, that that means we are prepared. And a playbook does not equate to preparation. If you have, A coach can draw up a plays and a playbook, and if you never have a practice run on those, it doesn't mean anything in the world if you don't actually send your players out there to practice. And likewise, in terms of preparing for a pandemic... A pandemic preparation plan does not depend wholly on the playbook. What it depends upon is whether or not you actually have the resources in place to handle a situation. So a real version of preparing comes from the previous two presidents, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. In the 90s, Bill Clinton read a novel about a disease that started sweeping through the country, and he, between that and some of the other terrorist events he was witnessing, he became convinced that germ warfare was a thing the United States needed to be prepared for. He looked at the military, and the military has a strategic reserve of drugs, medical equipment, and other things that they could use, but there was no similar type of thing for the American citizens. We just had whatever our hospitals had. So he set up the first strategic reserve of medical supplies and drugs and, you know, important essential drugs that we would need for different types of diseases and conditions. So that was his contribution. George W. Bush cranked that up to 11 and practically tore off the knob because he immediately had to deal with the aftermath of 9-11. And in that aftermath, if you remember, there was the anthrax scare. And so that meant that the federal government had to be able to respond to this because it was a military threat and be able to get supplies to the American people. He also read uh, a book on the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic and became convinced that we needed to take more precautions there because in 2005 we started seeing early signs of the avian flu and how we needed to act quickly to counter that because the H1N1 could potentially have been another 1918 Spanish flu situation because they believe that the 1918 flu was also a form of the uh, an avian flu strain so you have he saw that threat and just acted immediately he took the strategic reserve plans of Clinton and started including things like tamiflu and and greatly increased it he looked at the CDC quarantine camps that in the 70s they started shutting down on the basis that they didn't believe infectious disease was even a problem anymore and he just he started fast tracking vaccines and other things because we had already seeing early cases of the bird flu and so we had a very hefty response ready and were able to go when it finally hit in 2009. And so you had those two presidents who were convinced that germ warfare and infectious disease were still a part of the world, even though experts had been saying up until that time that it was not. And they brought us back into full preparation. So that was their contribution, and the Bush administration did indeed put together a playbook on how to handle a flu pandemic, and the Obama administration followed that, and that was one of the reasons that we had so much success encountering it. But even with that, tens of millions of people still got it. We didn't shut down anything, and tens of millions of people still got this version of the flu. It's just that we were prepared. We had vaccines. We were ready to put together everything we needed to counteract the spread of this and prevent people from dying, even though it was still a very bad disease. We were still able to be prepared for that. So, the point here is about this is that a technocrat looks at all this and says, okay, we need to make a plan to put together everything for this. And yes, a plan is very important, but we also had early precursors to. COVID-19. It is a coronavirus. We saw versions of versions of it in SARS and MERS spread and kill people at high numbers. And that was our warning shot when we should have been preparing for a viral coronavirus. And we did nothing about this. At no point did you see, you know, the Obama administration say, OK, a coronavirus is a unique threat and we need to go after that. Or Ebola is a unique thing. So we don't need to shut down vaccination programs studying for stuff for this. We need to keep them going to prevent a future similar outbreak. That's what should have happened. And if you go back and read about the response to Ebola, there is a lot of There's a lot of criticism for how that was handled, specifically for the World Health Organization. That was one of their more recent failures apart from COVID-19. So you see and you go back and you see all these various things with these diseases where these were our warning shots where we needed to respond to them now. You have, when it comes to these infectious diseases, if one comes and it's small, you have to presume that a version of it can come in a larger form. So you have to prepare for it that way. These technocrats believe in CYA plans. So using a little corporate tease here, that is cover your ass plans. They do not want to be blamed for not doing anything. They want to be able to say they did something, but they're trying to avoid actually any action here. And the avoidance of any action here, of you know, trying to figure out how to prevent the spread of some of these things, led us to be unprepared for the coronavirus. We should have been able to have been more prepared and identified things like respirators and other things as critical infrastructure to keep. And we're going to learn from this, obviously, but we need to do this for more diseases. We You can't just say that a CYA bureaucratic plan is enough. A 69-page playbook, and I use that scare quotes on that because it, it's just ludicrous to think of it that way, that is not enough. You have to put down actual supplies. When FEMA is preparing for hurricane season, they look at what the predictions are, and they put to, they put aside supplies accordingly, planning for the worst-case scenarios. They have actual supplies that they can send to these places. They don't just put together a playbook and say, okay, that's all you got to do. You have to put actual resources down and act on those. So there are a lot of questions that I think you can ask here but the this technocratic this aristocratic technocracy the way that they've set it up currently it is a disaster it is a failure and it is bucking against the the political traditions of the United States and i think fixing that which i'll get more into in this next week's newsletter should be a top priority for our country there are of course you know a lot of problems that you can point to but getting the country back to some form of electable accountability is a good thing, and we need more of that. So that's all for this section. When we come back from the break, we will jump more into the horse race election stuff. We're finally beginning to get the first polls for the general election this fall. And I mean that in that we're getting true general election polls and not... Here are some primary polls, along with some general election polls of Trump versus different candidates. This is truly Trump versus Biden. We're getting some of the signals from the pandemic, and also people are beginning to poll the most important part of this, the battleground states. And that's where we're going to go this week is CNN's polling in particular, because they released both national polling along with the battleground states. And overall, Biden is clearly in the lead in the national polls right now. If you look at the averages, if you just look in the general, what happens in any given poll, he's got between a five to seven point lead. Some of the higher ones are around eight to nine. Some of the others are around four to five. So five to seven is usually about where you would average that. And that sounds about right for this part of the electoral cycle. Um, this is nat- this is the- these are the national polls only and of course they always tell part of the story because what you get involved with here is that a republican candidate will be more po- more popular in these battleground states than he would be in the states that are going to make up a lot of the national polling specifically when you start including things like california and new york those types of states can because of their large populations can provide a sort of a a counterweight to what's happening in the rest of the country. And when you have a candidate like Donald Trump, who is very polarizing, it also is going to show up more because his negativities in these deep blue states are going to impact national polling. So Biden right now has a clear lead in the national polls. I don't suspect you will see that change that much from now until November if any if it narrows at any month, you would expect some narrowing as we get closer because it shows that uh right now his lead in the national polls is around 50 around 51% to Donald Trump's 46 45% and so you would expect Donald Trump to be able to beat 45, 46 in some of these swing state polls, and that's what is showing so far. So in CNN's battleground poll, the first major one we've gotten of all of them together previously to this, they were battleground polls of impeachment, and I thought those were pretty interesting then too. But in any event, this general election poll of 15 different states... We'll read them off because it's kind of helpful to know because I don't think some of these are going to end up being battlegrounds. But it's Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Mexico, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Wisconsin. Now, CNN's criteria for this was pretty straightforward. I don't really begrudge him for choosing these 15, but I would say that Ohio, Virginia, and Colorado are not swing states at all. In fact, I'm pretty sure Virginia and Colorado are going to vote Democratic, so you can just take them out of the list, and Ohio is going to be a pretty secure Republican win. Trump should win that by 6 to 8 points, if not more. so, And the same will happen in Virginia. The Northern Virginia Corridor will give that state to Democrats, and Colorado has been trending blue for a little while, even though they do have a libertarian streak in them. So those would not be, I think you do have 12 true swing states here that could go, maybe a little less so in Georgia, but those are sort of where this race is going to play out. Now, like I said, in the national polls, Biden leads 51 Forty-six. If you only look at these fifteen battleground states, those numbers are flipped. And those fifteen, Trump is leading by fifty-two percent to Biden's forty-five percent, and that gives Trump a seven-seven point lead across all those states. Now that's interesting. Just you know, if you're if you're looking at all those together those numbers are going to be very different when you look at them individually. So with a place like Wisconsin is going to be a lot closer than a state like Ohio or, you know, Florida will be razor thin just due to the demographics of the state, but Trump should still have an edge there. But The disconnect here were between the national polls and the battleground polls. It goes back to what I was saying, where you're seeing Trump being more popular here than where he is before. And so what this means is that Trump is leading in electorally important states. So if you're looking to win the Electoral College, which is how you win the presidency... He's le- he's he's showing good numbers in those states, but losing the so-called popular vote. Democrats tend to run up numbers and get a lot of useless votes in places that are deep blue, and Republicans are not challenging that hard. So your your more liberal voters, your more actively liberal voters, are voting in places like California and New York and elsewhere where we already know the results of those elections, and so it's not really important that your friend in California is voting that way. We know there's nothing really that interesting that's happening right there. So that's the disconnect here. It means that we're heading for another version of 2016. The interesting note here, and I find this interesting just because it's a special election and there's not much else to go on in forms of actual data, it's that the Republican Party won a special election race in California. Katie Hill, the former... The former representative who got ousted because she was having sex with staffers and introduced everyone to the word thruple, for which we all hate her greatly for doing so, and is now trying to go around and and promote herself as some sort of victim. She's just a nutcase. In any event, the race was over her former seat. They hey, Democrats were able to find another woman to run for it, and the the Republicans ran a guy named Mike Garcia. He won the race, and he actually had the interesting distinction of actually also winning the Hispanic vote in that district. Whether that will hold long term, I don't know. Katie Hill had such a disgraced uh, just aura over that race that it sort of changed the dynamics. But it is a way that Republicans can show that they have momentum heading into 2020. And at the very least, it shows that Democratic voters may be a little depressed in races like this one where they're not going to go back and vote. The fun note out of this race for me is that if you follow politics at all or you just follow stuff that happens on YouTube or elsewhere, you know about the Young Turks their founder and creator, I believe his name is Sink. Um, I think he pronounced his name Uger uh, or Uyghur, I think it's Uger. He is a very loud progressive voice, and he also ran in this race in the Democratic primary. In the Democratic primary he came in with a grand total of six point six percent of the Democratic primary vote. So that was very, very entertaining, if you enjoy watching him getting beat down that way, because he's a very loud and prominent, uh, very loud progressive. He sits more on the Democratic Socialist side of the party, where he wants to pull the party further and further to the left. During the 2016 election, he and his team did a live stream of of the results coming in, and it, it was just pure and unadulterated entertainment to watch he and all his co-hosts have a meltdown live on air on YouTube as everyone watched them in disbelief as Donald Trump won. If you ever wanted to have a camera live on a person who didn't want Trump to win, he was at the top of that list. He should be at the top of your list. And so that was very, very entertaining to watch. And in the end, a Republican won the seat that where he lives. So again, this is a special election. It it, theoretically, this doesn't really tell us much, but the Republicans will be using this to say, that hey, we got to pick up here. This is a good sign for us. Mike García only won. He won the Hispanic vote in the race. So these are some good takeaways that we can have and that we can point towards as we move towards 2020. Uh, 2020 is just going to be an uphill battle for Republicans just in general, they're they're having to deal with the fact that Trump is looming over everything and he tends to nationalize the election. So if you're looking to run on local issues, it's just going to be an impossible task for you to do. But between this and the coronavirus causing, you can basically just throw out all electoral models because we don't know how the coronavirus is going to play out. And any smart... Electoral analysis analyst will point to the coronavirus and say, you've got to know how it turns out to have any idea on how we're going to have any predictive power down the road. Because I know, you know, you Harry Enton, who is a very smart analyst at CNN, he he's pointed out that Biden's lead is the steadiest for a politician in national polling on record. And he's right about that. This Biden's lead in the polls is basically unchanging. It's almost like looking at Donald Trump's approval rating that has been almost unchanged in between a band of 42 to 46 percent. And that's probably where Trump will be come election day. I suspect that, suspect that he will tick up towards election day. But as people start choosing in a binary type election, as they will see it. And also, I just don't believe third parties are going to play as big of a role in this election as they did in 2016. So between those two things, you're looking at a close race. Biden's best case, even though he's had this steady you know, race that he's running here, his best case scenario is to run like a Jimmy Carter in 76, where he's trying to run as this pure outsider who's trying to bring some integrity back. Because you have Donald Trump, who's more of your Nixon type of guy in this situation. Or, you know, Ford, who had the Nixon... Uh, taint on him. So that's sort of the way that's sort of Biden's case that he has returned to some sort of a normalcy and goodness. Whether or not that'll actually happen, I do not know, because the best case for Donald Trump is to say that this is a race like 2004 or 2016, where you keep it close, you get within striking distance, and you try to just beat down Biden to the point where no one believes that he's a good guy at all. And things like the Tara Reed story help that narrative along. I think you'll begin to see some other stories come out along that regard as the as the electoral season moves along, but... Just the big story still between now and then is how do people factor in the coronavirus? How do they read it in their day-to-day lives? You have to know the answer to that, and if you don't know the answer to that, you don't know what's going to happen because it, the the job numbers. Usually, when you're looking at an election and you're trying to model it out, you can look at the economy and say, okay, the economy is X. Are people happy? Are, are people you know are they confident in it or are they not confident in it? And if you told anyone before this year that at some point before the summer Donald Trump was going to be facing the worst job losses since the great depression where you know over 36 million people are out of work you would just assume that he was going to lose in a landslide but if you look at polling people still give him positive remarks on the economy and that's because they largely don't blame him for what's happened here they everybody seems to understand that this is the coronavirus which means the real test here is the coronavirus and how he responds to that. At the beginning of the year, people thought that impeachment could be the thing to to potentially sink him because it exposed Donald Trump's character and everybody could look on that and decide whether or not they were going to vote for him or against him based solely on impeachment. Well, Right now, impeachment feels like it was five years ago. My first piece at the dispatch was on impeachment, and it feels like I wrote that five years ago. It feels like I wrote it last year, and in reality, it was posted at the beginning of March, at the end of the impeachment trial proceedings. You know, I was wrapping all of it up and putting a bow on it. So impeachment's been fully forgotten now. Nobody is talking about impeachment, and I don't think they'll be talking about impeachment come Election Day unless the coronavirus gets wrapped up into that. But what I will note here this goes back to a point that I sort of started out on, is that when I was looking at impeachment polling back during when I was writing that piece, one of the very interesting things that I found was that you could look at impeachment polling on a national level, and it told you one thing. If you looked in these swing states, Donald Trump's, the the polls on impeachment, Donald Trump always fared at least around five points better than in the the national polling, because in the national polling, you have to include the places like California, New York. So that all, that all matters. But when you're trying to convince people to go to an impeachment, you have to hit a two thirds majority in the Senate and everything, all that. So that's where we were on that. And what I noticed is that impeachment, it told you that Trump was far more popular in these battleground states than he was on a national level. And so a theory that I had at the time was I wondered if if that would carry over and you could look at the look at the national polling and just tip it 5 points in Trump's favor and see what would happen. Because in reality in order for Biden in order for these national polls to have a, a, a to matter for Biden, he has to actually run up the score here because if if Trump truly does if all things are even and Trump is, you know, within 5 points in these states Biden needs to have more than a five-point lead in the national polls and more than a five-point lead in some of these swing states. And so it means he's probably got to be around the eight to ten-point range in order to pull off on the national level what's happening in these swing states. And I don't know that that's going to happen because if Trump is already showing a seven-point lead in these swing states, it means that he is in a stronger approval rating position here, even in the middle of a coronavirus, than he otherwise would be in the, on the national level. And so, if people didn't support removing Donald Trump via impeachment when they had clear evidence that something had happened there, then in my mind what that signified was that they were willing to give him potentially another shot come election day. Because you're not willing to remove him, then it kind of suggests that you would support him. It was Impeachment was a very interesting binary choice. It's a forced binary choice because the question is, do you want him removed or not? And if you're saying no, you don't want him to remove, you have to then ask, well, if you don't want him removed, do you want him to stay? Because that's sort of the, the second question there that goes unanswered. And the suggestion right now from these battleground state polls that, is that if you opposed impeachment, in these battleground states, you might be willing to vote for him again, which could be an interesting data point come election day. So we'll see. It's it's an idea that I had back then, but you know, so with the coronavirus that has thrown everything up in the air. Don't know whether or not that will be true or not, but it is fun to jump in the numbers here and have one of the first horse race general election podcasts of the season since we're now out of the primary season. So that's all I've got for this week's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes, or feel free to hit me up on Twitter. My handle is at dvonci. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you'll get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews, because those always help us out. I hope you guys tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.